As much as we hate to admit it, we've become more accustomed in our culture to mob violence. A few quick examples. It was just a little over two years ago in June of 2020 that a mob took over six city blocks of downtown Seattle, the Capitol Hill District. It was a 23-day occupation there of the Capitol Hill District. At first, uh, the protesters and the mob called themselves Chaz. Eh, take that back. At first, they called themselves CHOP, didn't they? <laughs> Capitol Hill Occupational Protest. And over the course of the 23 days, they changed their name to Chaz. Capitol Hill. You remember what it stood for? Autonomous Zone. Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. So they take over the, the, the downtown district of Seattle. Uh, the police officers basically get chased out of their precinct station. And for 23 days... Uh, those that had formed that mob occupied downtown Seattle. Several people were killed during that time. Uh, there was millions of dollars in damage to public and private property. It was a mess. And it was just about seven months after that, the infamous day, January 6th, 2021, where we saw terrifying scenes like this in Washington, D.C., where thousands of protesters decide to turn into a mob and storm Capitol Hill. And so they stormed the Capitol building. At least 2,000 people made it into the building. And in the melee, five people were killed. We saw different kinds of mobs forming just a few months ago in the late spring and early summer. Uh, we saw in the, the wake of the leaked Supreme Court draft overruling of Roe versus Wade that mobs were forming and vandalizing pro-life centers across the country. There were dozens of pro-life centers that were vandalized over the past few months, and some of those even uh, were firebombed. Not many, but a few of them were firebombed, and there was graffiti found outside many of them. So we have this situation where so many uh, situations in our day, we have this situation where so many times... We find this mob violence taking place. And it's not that much different from how it was in Paul's day. When we left off last week, Paul was at the temple in Jerusalem, standing on the steps leading up to that castle of Antonia, which is also called the Fortress of Antonia, there in the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, adjoining the temple complex. And we saw that they had led Paul up the steps, moving him towards safety, because Claudius Lysias, the commander of the troops there at that fortress, saw that Paul was about to be torn limb from limb in the temple grounds. The Jewish people were forming a mob, a riot was developing, and they were going to kill Paul. And so most people in Paul's situation, is uh, they would have been taken hold of by those troops and led in the direction of safety. Most people would have yelled, get me out of here, get me out of here. These people in this mob are crazy. But not Paul. Not Paul. We look at what he said in Acts 29, verse 39. He said, please let me speak to the people. So Paul turned his back on safety. He faced the mob that had just tried to kill him. And in the first 20, 21 verses of chapter 22, Paul speaks to the crowd. He doesn't yell at the crowd. He doesn't insult them. He doesn't complain. He doesn't even defend himself against their false accusations. What Paul does do was take the opportunity to share his amazing testimony. What his life had been like before 
he encountered Jesus Christ, how he became a follower of Jesus Christ, and how Jesus Christ has changed his life ever since. Well, Paul stood before his accusers boldly but humbly. He was an open book. He had nothing to hide. His personal testimony was honest and it was powerful, but it was cut short in verse 22. As soon as Paul spoke the word Gentiles, the crowd went ballistic. They went crazy and started shouting, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Now, why did the Jews at the temple lose it as soon as Paul mentioned the word Gentiles? Well, just a few months earlier, Paul had written these words in Romans chapter 1. These are actually the theme verses of the book of Romans. Paul had written, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. So knowing that Paul was preaching that Jesus can save Gentiles, even if they aren't circumcised, even if they don't follow the Mosaic law, even if they don't ever celebrate the Jewish feasts or ever visit the temple, that really ticked them off. Some of you experienced a similar anger from your own family. Your family was okay with you reading your Bible and calling yourself a born-again Christian. Many of them were even okay with you attending a non-denominational church as long as you didn't stop calling yourself Catholic. And when you chose to have kids, they were okay with you taking your kids to your new church, but you'd better make sure that those kids of yours were christened by a Catholic priest. And you'd better make sure that they go through confirmation, and you'd better make sure that they take First Communion there in a Catholic church. Some of you have experienced a similar situation that Paul experienced. Well, the Jerusalem mob was calling for Paul's lynching. So for the second time, Commander Lysias had to step in to save Paul's neck. And that's where we're going to pick up here in verse 22 of Acts chapter 22. Make sure you're there in your Bibles. Follow along. Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, Paul answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. 
Well, may God bless us as we read and study and apply his word to our lives today. We read in verse 23 that the Jerusalem mob was shouting, they're throwing off their cloaks, they're flinging dust into the air. It reminds me of a three-year-old's temper tantrum. Uh, This seems odd to us. It seems petulant, immature, but that's actually in that culture uh, how groups of people would display their disgust with someone or something. So what happens here is not strange in that culture. Common or not, Commander Lysias didn't want the uproar to escalate. So he ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. And once Paul was in the safety of the barracks, the commander gave his soldiers an order that seems really strange to us. Notice what he says. He says there in verse 24, he directed that Paul be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Do you remember what flogging is? Sometimes it's called a scourging. Flogging, scourging, same thing. Unlike the Jews, when the Romans scourged or flogged someone, they didn't use just a standard run-of-the-mill whip with leather straps. They would take leather straps and embed in those straps sharp pieces of bone or metal. And they would have up to nine different leather strands embedded with this bone and metal on this one handle. And so this one here in the picture shows a six-stranded scourging tool. Flagum is what it's sometimes called, or a flagrum, excuse me. But sometimes they would get up to nine different strands. That's why it's sometimes nicknamed a cat of nine tails. And so when that Roman uh, uh, soldier would take this this flagrum and, and whip a prisoner with it, because of these sharp pieces of bone and metal, it would actually embed in that prisoner's back. And so those pieces of bone and metal would stick in that guy's back. And so when the Roman went to retrieve that flagrum, he would rip out pieces of flesh from that prisoner's back. It was a very torturous procedure. In fact, uh, many prisoners didn't even survive it. So why are they doing this to Paul? It's a good question because Paul hadn't been convicted of any crime. In fact, he hadn't really been charged with any crime. So why is Commander Lysias here directing that Paul be tortured? Well, he's doing it in order to find out why the people were shouting at him, (laughs) why the people were rioting. Uh, So let me get this straight. He sees an uproar taking place in the temple. And so he sends a hundred troops down into the temple to keep Paul from being torn limb from limb. Okay? He takes him to the safety of the barracks so that he can have him scourged, which may kill him in the process. Why on earth would the Roman commander have Paul scourged? It's a valid question. The answer is, because that's how they interrogated prisoners in those days. He went to the crowd and asked him, why are you so upset with Paul? He didn't get a straight answer. Paul turned around and preached to the crowd, so that didn't give him a straight answer as to why they were so mad at him. So he decides to go to plan B. Plan B is, I'm going to scourge this guy and basically torture him until I get either a confession or I find out the truth as to why he's ticking off this crowd. Sounds crazy, but... That's how the Romans did it in those days. He did it to interrogate him more than to punish him. Well, as strange as it may sound, in cases like this, the Romans didn't consider flogging 
a punishment. But notice what we read in verse 25. The soldiers strap Paul's hands to a whipping post as they prepare him to be scourged. And Paul matter-of-factly says to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to scourge or flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Long story short, Paul's father or grandfather must have been some sort of hero in the Roman Empire because his dad or granddad had been given the gift of Roman citizenship, which was passed down to his son and grandson. And so somewhere down the line, Paul had had a hero ancestor who was granted Roman citizenship. So when Paul was born, he was born a Roman citizen, a wonderful privilege in the Roman Empire to be called a citizen. And so the rights of a Roman citizen were so highly regarded that if the commander had gone through with Paul's scourging, that commander at the very least would have been fired or he may have been killed because it was a huge blunder in those days for any soldier or commander to flog a Roman citizen. Citizens had great rights. They couldn't be chained with heavy chains. Roman citizens uh, couldn't be flogged with a scourging tool, and they couldn't be crucified. And so Paul matter-of-factly said, hey, is it okay to do this to a Roman citizen? And that's why we find out in verse 29 that as soon as he says this, the soldiers withdraw from him, and the commander is alarmed. He realized he had just dodged a bullet. So Commander Lysias, he's in a pickle. He was responsible for keeping the peace in Jerusalem, so he had to get Paul off the streets. He didn't have a, didn't want to have a riot on his hands, but it wasn't clear if Paul had committed any crime worthy of imprisonment. Part, or plan A was to ask the crowd why they were so mad at Paul. Well, that didn't work. Plan B was to scourge the truth out of Paul, but that plan was a bust because Paul was a Roman citizen. And so Lysias decides to go with plan C, which we read about beginning in verse 30 of Acts chapter 22. It says, The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial before you because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, 
And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take Paul away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Hmm. Well, Commander Lysias' plan C was to order the chief priests and the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, to hold a hearing to see if he could figure out what Paul was being accused of. So the Sanhedrin gathered the next morning, and the commander brought Paul in, had him stand before them. Although Luke doesn't record it for us, presumably between the final verse of chapter 22 and the first verse of chapter 23, a few of the Jewish leaders spoke and leveled charges against Paul. Then we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 23, and Paul begins to respond to those accusations. He speaks. And his response doesn't come across as, as meek and mild, does it? His response in verse 1 comes across as stubborn and rather confrontational. He looks straight at the Sanhedrin and says, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty before God in all good conscience to this day. Well, it had been around 25 years since Paul had been the Sanhedrin's little bulldog, uh, going from house to house and synagogue to synagogue to arrest Christians and bring them up for charges and even having some of them killed. He'd been their little bulldog. Paul had been a rising star in Judaism just 25 years earlier, and he was on track most likely to become a member of the Sanhedrin himself. If Jesus hadn't shaken up his plans... At this point in time, Paul may have been a member of the Sanhedrin. So as Paul stands before this Jewish ruling council here in Acts 23, he most likely recognized many of the leaders who were standing there accusing him. And he, even though he knew some of these guys, looks straight in their eyes. He knows them. He sat under their teaching. He had served with them. And interestingly, he doesn't address them in the normal way. Most people in Paul's shoes would have addressed them in the traditional, very respectful way. Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He doesn't address them that way. He simply speaks to them as peers, as colleagues. He calls them my brothers. And what he says next immediately gets him into hot water with the head honcho that high priest himself, Ananias. Paul says, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Verse 2, look what happens. At this, the high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him in the mouth. Interesting. What was Paul getting at? And why did it get him under the high, why did this get under the high priest's skin? Well, conscience is one of Paul's favorite words. Here in the book of Acts, he uses it twice, and he uses it 21 times in his New Testament letters. It's important to know what Paul means when he uses this word, conscience. 
because many of us find ourselves asking, how could Paul possibly claim to have lived his whole life in good conscience, knowing full well that in his early adult years he had arrested, falsely accused, and even voted to have some Christians killed? How could he possibly say he lived his life in good conscience? Well, I think Warren Wearsby does a great job of answering this question. This is how he answers it. He writes, Conscience is the inner judge or witness that approves when we do right and disapproves when we do wrong. Romans 2.15 Conscience does not set the standard. It only applies the standards of the person, whether they are good or bad, right or wrong. Conscience may be compared to a window that lets in the light. God's law is the light, and the cleaner the window is, the more the light shines in. And finally, or as the window gets dirty, the light gets dimmer. And finally, the light becomes darkness. A good conscience, or pure conscience, according to 1 Timothy 3.9, is one that lets in God's light so that we are properly convicted if we do wrong and encouraged if we do right. A defiled conscience, according to 1 Corinthians 8.7, is one that has been sinned against so much that it is no longer dependable. So how could Paul claim to have a good conscience? Well, he had lived up to the light that he had. And that is all that a good conscience requires. After he became a Christian and the bright light of God's glory shone into his heart, 2 Corinthians 4.6, Paul then saw things differently and realized that he was the chief of sinners. It's kind of a long quote there, but I found this to be really insightful. Once again, Wearsby says, conscience, conscience doesn't set the standard. Conscience only applies the standard. So you could make the case that Paul followed his conscience his entire life. The problem was, before he accepted Christ, his heart was hard. His mind was closed to the truth. So he needed Jesus to soften his hard heart and open his closed mind so that his conscience could actually work the way that it was supposed to. Well, it's clear from verse 2 that the high priest of the Jews, Ananias, didn't like Paul's opening remark one bit. And Paul's hearing before the Sanhedrin just went downhill from there. Paul's opening remarks came across to his accusers as arrogant and hypocritical, The slap across Paul's mouth came across to Paul as petty and unbiblical. So Paul retaliates in verse 3 by turning the high priest Ananias and, and saying, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. These are pretty harsh words. They seem out of character for Paul, don't they? Doesn't seem like him. The guy that just the day before, had stood before the mob and not defended himself, not thrown out any criticism or accusations. He just shared the gospel. It seems a little out of character for him. Why is he changing his tone from the day before? Well, in verse 5, we see that Paul is pointing out something that's very true, that the Jewish leaders had broken Old Testament law by the very act of having him slapped in the Sanhedrin, because over in Exodus 22, verse 28, it does say, do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. I mixed up verses there. Long story short, this was out of character for Paul, because he himself 
was, you know what, kind of speaking down to the ruler of his people. And at the same time, he accused them of breaking another Old Testament law that made it clear that they weren't supposed to slap a fellow Jew. And so they were breaking Old Testament law. You could make the case that Paul was breaking Old Testament law. And so this was just going downhill fast. So why did Paul jump down the throat of that uh, Jewish ruling council member? Why did he come at Ananias so hard? And why did Ananias in turn ask him uh, to be slapped? Why did this interchange take place? Well, when it comes down to it, History tells us that Ananias was one of the most corrupt high priests that the Jewish people ever had. And so there's no mistaking that Ananias was not a good man. Not only was he a glutton, he was also a thief. He routinely stole money from his fellow priests. And everyone in Israel pretty much knew that Ananias, when push came to shove, would side with Rome over Israel. And so he really wasn't a promoter of the Israelite cause. He was more the promoter of a Roman cause. And so it was about 10 years after this exchange with Paul that the high priest Ananias was assassinated by his own people because they were tired of his corruption. And so he was a corrupt leader. He was a bad man. But Paul understood full well as he shares that scripture, he shouldn't be speaking down to the ruler of God's people. So why did Paul do it? Was it because he was angry? Maybe. Some make the case that Paul did it because his eyesight was bad. He couldn't tell that the man who ordered the soldier next to him to slap him, (laughs) he didn't know that that was the high priest. Eh, Maybe. Others think that in verse 5, Paul's actually being sarcastic. Oh, I didn't realize that this no good snake in the grass was a legitimate high priest. Please forgive me. Well, what was actually going on here? Was Paul using sarcasm? Was his eyesight shot? I don't know. But whatever happened, things were going downhill fast. Beginning in verse 6, Paul does a masterful job of getting the Sanhedrin members to shift their anger away from him and toward each other instead. He knew that the Sanhedrin was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees, and he had been, remember, hanging out with the Sanhedrin for years in his younger adult life, even as a teenager. And so he knew full well that the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife, and the Pharisees did. The Sadducees did not believe in heaven and hell, and the Pharisees did. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels and demons, the Pharisees did. And so Paul takes this opportunity to take some of the heat off of him and have them directed toward each other because they had had this centuries-old feud between them, Pharisees versus Sadducees. And so Paul strategically mentions two things. Number one, he mentions that he was a lifelong Pharisee. And number two, he mentions that he believed in the resurrection of the dead. And the result wasn't unexpected. Most of you have probably heard the old Arabian proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Have you heard that before? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so very quickly, these fellow Pharisees begin defending Paul. And they come to his defense. Well, you know, Paul, he's not so bad after all. He believes in the resurrection of the dead. And so some Pharisees begin standing up and defending Paul. Oh, there's nothing wrong with this guy. We need to let him go. And the Sadducees are like, are you nuts? 
And so this fight breaks out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're going back and forth. According to verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. It seems like as the Sadducees and the Pharisees were fighting each other, they were playing tug of war, and Paul was the rope. And so the commander sends the troops down to get Paul out of there. He orders the troops to go down to take Paul away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. This was now the third time in just two days that Commander Lysias had saved Paul's bacon. Like our own justice system here in the United States, the Roman justice system was far from perfect. But in Jerusalem, Rome's sense of justice and due process served Paul really well. Well, Paul must have wondered if the next time around, the Roman soldiers wouldn't get to him in time. He dreamed of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in Rome, but it was beginning to look like that was just a pipe dream. Knowing that Paul was thinking and and feeling these things in verse 11, Jesus speaks to him the following night. He speaks to him the perfect, timely message that Paul desperately needed to hear. And here's that simple, powerful message Jesus speaks. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Amen. That's all Paul needed to hear. Well, I want to share with you four key insights that we can pull from this passage today. Each of these is important. Insight number one, as long as you do it with integrity, it's okay to leverage your national rights for the good of others and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. I've tried to be very careful with how I worded this first insight. Far too many American Christians get on a soapbox about my rights and my freedoms and my body to do with what I want. Well, more times than not, that's not Christ-centered. That's self-centered. And that's not of God. Paul was very strategic about when and where he leveraged his rights as a Roman citizen. Don't forget that he was flogged in the city of Philippi by the Romans. He was flogged in Philippi. And at that point in time, he didn't speak up about being a Roman citizen in order to avoid the flogging. But he did speak up here in a similar situation in Jerusalem. Why? Because Paul put others' needs above his own needs. And he was laser-focused on advancing Christ's kingdom. And he believed in his heart that being flogged in Philippi would advance Christ's kingdom, but in Jerusalem it would not. The same should be said about us. Let's not leverage our national rights for personal gain. Let's leverage our rights for the good of others and for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Amen? Insight number two. Treat your conscience like a close friend. Don't allow it to be tainted and clouded by ongoing, unconfessed sin. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul warns Timothy about hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. That's a tragedy. To have a God-given conscience 
that has been exposed to so much sin and so much depravity that it's become completely desensitized to sin and depravity. That's a tragedy. The conscience no longer works. It has no feeling. It's just numb. Your conscience is a gift from God. It really is. So make sure that you guard your heart from the hardness of sin and stop filling your eyes and your mind with immoral junk. Because if your heart is hard and your mind is full of trash, your conscience window will become grimier and grimier to the point where it doesn't let God's light through anymore. So confess your sins and turn from your sins every single day so that your conscience can be clear and the light of God's word can shine through. Insight number three. Even when your leaders do things that are disrespectful, God's word calls you to show respect to your leaders. Amen? God calls you to show respect to your leaders. 1 Peter 2.17, Romans 13, verse 1, Titus 3, verse 1, Proverbs 24.21, and the list goes on and on. Throughout God's Word, we are commanded to honor and respect and obey our government leaders. Not just the government leaders that we like, that's shallow. All government leaders. Not just the government leaders we agree with, that's shallow. All government leaders. Not just the government leaders we voted for, all government leaders. Over the past few years, Christians across our country have come across just as divisive and disrespectful as non-Christians. In some cases, even more so. And as we've talked about recently, we have given Christianity a really bad name in the last few years. The gospel is offensive enough. We don't need to make the gospel more offensive by being a bunch of hate-spewing, disrespectful jerks as we live our lives out in our culture. Remember, your number one political duty and responsibility before God is to pray for our political leaders. That's your number one duty. So pray for our president. Pray for our governor. Pray for our local leaders and show them respect even when they do things that are disrespectful. Finally, insight number four. God's message to Paul is also God's message to you. Take courage. You still have important work to do. I'm not through with you yet. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we are so thankful that you are not through with us yet. Lord, it's it's kind of remarkable to think about this. You used that commander Lysias to spare Paul those three times. The first time he was able to escort Paul up on the steps. So when he asked for permission to speak to the crowd, he was able to speak to them before they wouldn't listen. But on the steps, they did. We thank you that you used a governor who didn't even follow you as Lord and Savior, you used him, Lord, to share the gospel. And he saved Paul a second and a third time. And 
as he put him in the safety of the barracks and spared Paul from being torn limb from limb and eventually sent him off to one of the kings and then he was shipped off to Rome. Lord, he was eventually able to go to Rome and share the gospel with hundreds, if not thousands of more people. Lord, you used those Roman leaders in Jerusalem to advance the cause of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the miraculous way you do that. Lord, I know some Christians aren't crazy about our president or vice president or governor or local leaders. But, Lord, we think in a similar way. In fact, we know in a similar way you can use President Biden. You can use Vice President Harris. You can use Governor Newsom. You can use our local city council members. Even those who do not claim the name of Christ, you can use them to advance the cause of Christ. So would you do that, O God? And would you help us to carry out our responsibility to pray for them, that they would be saved and to pray, O oh God, that they would do what is righteous and good in your sight. Lord, I pray that we would take a stand for Christ and not be a, a bunch of petulant, sore losers, Lord, when our candidate doesn't win. Help us to pray. Help us to trust that you are at work for the good. And help us to stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for your promise today to each of us. That as there is breath in our lungs and a beat in our hearts, you are not through with us yet. So please, God, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're here with us today and you have accepted Christ, these are some important insights and challenges for us today. I hope that you'll apply them to your life today. And if you're with us today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, I just want to tell you point point blank, as lovingly but as honestly as I can, your good works and your religious acts will not get you to heaven. Jesus Christ came because he's the only way. He's the only way to make it to heaven someday. And if you realize you need to accept him as Savior and Lord today, I'd like to share the ABCs with you. A, admit that you are a sinner and that you need Jesus. B, believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he's your only hope to be forgiven and go to heaven someday. And C, choose to begin following Jesus Christ today. Put him in the driver's seat of your life. If you've made that decision, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to hear about that decision. We'd love to talk to you about setting up a time to be baptized because you need to do that next. If you're serious about accepting Christ, if you're serious about obeying his commands, you need to get baptized. He commanded it. It's not optional. And so reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you about getting baptized as soon as possible. If you need prayer, you can reach out to us as well. You can reach us by phone at 760-246-4100 or reach us by email at info at greaterimpact.cc. May God bless you as you trust and love and obey our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Love you, church. See you next time.